Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Amanda Sturgisketter, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery lecture series. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We would like to thank Allergan for their support of this podcast. This is the second part of a two-part series on body contouring. Today, we'll be discussing brachioplasty and thigh lift. Our guest host is Dr. Detlev Erdman, a head-to-toe reconstructive surgeon here at Duke University Hospital with an interest in body contouring and massive weight loss patients. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So we'll start by discussing the anatomy of brachioplasty. So there is subcutaneous fat in the arms that tends to collect posteriorly and inferiorly. There are two fascial systems, the superficial fascial system and the longitudinal fascial system. The superficial fascial system encases the fat of the arm from axilla to elbow. The longitudinal fascial system begins at the clavicle and is known as the clavopectoral fascia. This extends to the axilla and is deep to the pectoralis. These fascial systems loosen with age and the result is ptosis. The deep fascial system houses all important neurovascular structures and should not be violated. Important sensory nerves to be aware of are the medial brachial cutaneous nerve, which supplies the middle third of the arm and pierces the fascia seven centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle, the musculocutaneous nerve, which supplies sensation to the lateral arm, the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve, which provides sensation to wrist and medial forearm. This nerve pierces the deep fascia 14 centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle. The MABC runs with the basilic vein and divides into anterior and posterior branches. So, Dr. Erdman, when you're evaluating a patient for brachioplasty, what are the most important aspects of the history and physical? The most important aspects are really like um, what type of weight loss uh, did the patient undergo? Uh, There are two main types. One is massive weight loss through um, surgery or weight loss procedures such as gastric bypass, or of the, if these are patients who lost weight to just diet and exercise. Of course, um, we would like to know, are there any bleeding uh, history or is there any, are there any blood clots in the history of the patient that could be important? Uh, is the patient an active smoker uh, and so forth? Great. So those are the important aspects when you're first seeing a patient. And then in terms of classifying the upper arm contour, this is typically divided into three classes that depend on skin and fat excess. The type one has minimal skin excess and moderate fat excess. Type two has moderate skin excess and minimal fat excess, while type three has moderate skin and moderate fat excess. And so this is important because it dictates what the treatment is. So for type one, this is best treated with liposuction alone. For type 2, if there is horizontal skin laxity alone, then we perform an elliptical skin excision down the length of the arm. If there is horizontal and vertical excess, then we may perform a T-shaped excision. Dr. Edmund, do you ever extend your brachioplasty onto the chest wall? Yeah, uh, I would like to just mention that I have completely abandoned the uh, T-shaped excision. I don't think it makes sense. Um, I uh, usually like to perform the vertical excision of the skin along the, uh, the upper arm, and I, I may extend it in the same vector into the axilla. Okay. And are you mainly extending it for massive weight loss patients? Yes, I extend it if it makes sense, and if the patient is requesting it, 
but most of the time I end uh, within the axilla and rather address the the axilla and the back and the front portions of these uh, you know like skin rolls uh, in separate procedure. Okay. And do you use liposuction at all in, in combination with excision? I do. This is the most uh, rare event. Uh, most of the patients that I see had experienced massive weight loss and require skin excision only. Uh, very occasionally, I do liposuction only, but that's a rare event. Um, and I think in maybe 10% of the cases, I combine the liposuction with the excess skin. Okay. It's- Dr. Ehrman, when do you perform mini brachioplasty as opposed to a standard brachioplasty? Short answer for me, um, I don't do mini brachioplasties. I don't think it makes sense. I think the scar is significant and is um, in the wrong direction. So I don't do these mini brachioplasties. Um, I'm committing to a full brachioplasty if I commit to the surgery in general. Okay, fair enough. I think if we're going to go for it, that makes sense just to you know, make the, the standard brachioplasty incision. I think even the short scar in the axilla is so non-pleasing that I think it's, it's a too much of a trade-off for a spindle-type excision right in the axilla. Therefore, I think the, the cost-benefit ratio is too high. Okay. I agree with that. And then I know that one of the common complications with brachioplasty is scar widening. What do you do to prevent scar widening during surgery? Uh, it's scar widening, and then sometimes surgeons are unable to close the incision, which is the worst scenario. In both events, uh, the skin resection is too aggressive, and the closure is too tight. So I prevent a wide scar by not um, closing it too tight uh, or by not over-resecting, and uh, that is part of the preoperative planning. Yeah, better to prevent than to, you know, have a tight closure. and. Correct. I think the white scar is not because of the patient's, you know, scarring, as uh, some surgeons may refer to. I think it's because of an overtight closure. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, So we'll briefly go through just the procedural steps for standard brachioplasty. Uh, Again, this is indicated for moderate to severe excess skin, and usually an incision one centimeter superior from the bicipital groove from the axilla to the apex of the elbow is marked. And then a pinch test is performed to determine the amount of resection. And as we just spoke about with Dr. Erdman, better to not over-resect. Uh, the scar can be placed medially or posteriorly, and a medial placed scar is less visible, but you know there's some evidence that it's prone to widening. And a posterior scar usually has a a fine line scar uh, that's more visible. And then another pearl was a layer of one centimeter of subcutaneous fat should be left between the middle and lower third of the upper arm to prevent damage to the MABC and the facilic vein. And Dr. Men, do your, does your approach or your markings change at all for your massive weight loss patients? Um, so um, I was taught two uh, approaches. One is uh, placing the uh, scar in the bicipital groove and one is placing the scar posterior. I personally do not perform the brachioplasty resulting in a scar in the bicep of the group. I have not done this procedure, and I don't do this procedure. The reason is that I've seen more unsatisfied patients coming to me requesting a revision with this approach. Also, just from a a, um, uh, in-service standpoint question, the uh, medial uh, antibrachial nerve, uh, sensory nerve, 
uh, is more prone to damaging with the bicipital groove approach. Uh, that's another disadvantage. Uh, I also feel that patients uh, with that approach are frequently under-resected. So I personally only perform the posterior scar placement and resection. I have the patient stand up and um, flex the elbow joint in a 90 degrees angle. Um, I then also do the, the pin prick type of outlining my resection. Then I do the marking of that spindle type uh, shape. Uh, I also add vertical um, uh, lines uh, perpendicular to the upper arm just to make sure that when the patient's on the table, my closure is not uh, distorted. And okay. the most important part, once you did the pinch test and mark the patient, I routinely take at least one centimeter off both lines. So I resect approximately mm-hmm. two centimeters less from the uh, intended initial marking to uh, just uh, acknowledge that there is it's a circumferential structure and right. over-resection is the highest complication. Therefore, I uh, routinely take up one centimeter per line and resect less to then okay. achieve a tension-free closure. I hope this makes sense. Yes, it does. No, thank you for going through that. That makes sense. We'll briefly go through some post-operative considerations. Common complications include seroma, hematoma, infection, numbness, uh, wound dehiscence, and as we spoke about, hypertrophic scar um, is the most common complication and is reported to occur in up to 40% of patients and is the most common reason for reoperation. Dr. Inman, what do you think about drains for these patients? Yeah, I, I can honestly say I've never placed drains in a brachioplasty. Okay. The next procedure we'll discuss is the medial thigh lift. So briefly, in terms of anatomy, the medial thigh has two fascial systems. Beneath the skin and dermis, the subcutaneous fat is separated by an attenuated superficial fascial system. And below this is the colles fascia, which is a strong, thick fascia. And this fascia attaches to the ischiopubic ramus, scarpus fascia, and the posterior border of the urogenital diaphragm. Lateral to the colles fascia lies the femoral triangle. And in terms of classification of lipodystrophy of the medial thigh, type 1 includes lipodystrophy with no sign of skin laxity, and liposuction alone may correct this deformity. Type 2 has lipodystrophy and skin laxity of the upper third of the thigh, and this is usually treated with liposuction uh, and horizontal skin excision. Type 3 includes lipodystrophy and moderate skin laxity beyond the upper third. This is typically treated with liposuction as well as horizontal and vertical components of the excision. Type 4 contains skin laxity along the length of the thigh, and a longer vertical incision is usually required. And finally, type 5 contains severe laxity and lipodystrophy and is treated with a two-stage approach, including liposuction in the first stage and excisional phyllus in the second. So, Dr. Rim, I know we talked about your markings and excision pattern for brachioplasty. What do you think about um, kind of a two-stage approach and your excision and marking for phyllus? I agree with uh, all you said. Um, in the severe, severe lipodystrophy cases of the uh, thigh, I also like uh, the stage approach by performing a very aggressive liposuction initially and then uh, potentially a skin resection uh, at a later time. Patients might ask them uh, at what time I tell them, usually not before three to six months before 
for the second intervention. Um, the uh, thigh lift is generally speaking uh, a procedure that nobody is very enthusiastic about. Um, some body contouring surgeons have completely abandoned the procedure. Um, it's similar to the uh, brachioplasty. You need to have a strong reason to perform this procedure because the scars can be rather visible and upsightful. I actually think that the mini thigh lift by placing the scar right in the in the groin um, has some uh, validity. Um, uh, I don't think in the upper arm it is it's a it's a procedure we should perform, but in the thigh it can be done. But most of the time, I feel that only the scar from the pubis to the knee level with a aggressive excision of a vertical spindle type skin makes sense. Um, okay. In the thigh, I like to combine that uh, procedure with liposuction to uh, also decrease the uh, the amount of bleeding. Okay, that makes sense. Do you uh, do you ever use a T component to this incision? I absolutely don't like to do that because the T point always breaks down. So either you do a spindle type excision and place the scar within the groin or the inner thigh, or um, you uh, bite the bullet and uh, do the entire medial thigh incision. I don't believe in these like semi or partial excisions. I either do all or nothing. Okay. Yeah, I think these patients probably are looking for, you know, an all or nothing once they come to you. In terms of complications, the most common complication of a thigh lift is edema. Other complications may include skin irregularities, hypertrophic scars, lymphedema, and recurrence. And for postoperative care, uh, generally compression garments are applied in the OR and worn for the first several weeks. Ambulation should be encouraged. And most people say they're placing drains. Do you ever place drains for thigh lifts? Yeah, so as I mentioned in the arm, I never place uh, drains. In the thigh, I always place drains. Okay. Uh, I think the dead space is just too big, and you cannot just uh, leave it like this. So drains are mandatory in the thigh for me. Considering or like uh, talking about the complications, scar uh, dehiscence, again, most likely because of too tight of a closure. Um, irregularities, I don't think is an issue because irregularities uh, were there before the surgery. So you can tell the patient, well, uh, these irregularities will probably like persist after the surgery. They right. might improve, but they will not go away. The biggest issue that I see with thigh lifts is really prolonged seroma or drainage. So sometimes we keep these drains not a week or so, but up to like three or four weeks, which is mm -hmm. sort of bothersome to the patient and to the surgeon. But the amount of drainage that um, uh, like from a, a thigh drain can be you know, 150 ml per day wow. over several weeks. So that's something I would always tell the patient. Prolonged seroma, drainage, and drain placement is an issue. And are you deciding when to take out the drain based on output? If they're remaining that high, do you just keep them in? Or after several weeks, do you just say, you know, we need to pull it? Good question. So I routinely ask the drainage to be lower, let's say 30 ml or lower in a thigh per day before I pull it. But if a patient is draining for several weeks and you become concerned about cellulitis or something, then I bite the bullet and pull the drain. So I would say after four weeks with a drainage above 30 ml, I would probably then pull it. Okay. Yeah. I guess you know, after a while, you got to take it out eventually and bite the bullet. Right. Because you can uh, really create, you can create cellulitis, you know, by 
having an entry point from the strain into the thigh. Right. Uh, the last couple of questions uh, that I wanted to review were, was your approach with massive weight loss patients in general and about what you tell them about the appropriate timing to begin body contouring after their weight loss? The biggest issue in these patients, and it's very, very difficult sometimes because patients want to have a quick solution to the issues, is body mass index. Um, it's very, very difficult to explain to patients that they should not have that surgery, they're unhappy, they might choose to go somewhere else, uh, they might say something uh, not very nice about you um, on, on the uh, websites and so forth. But body mass index is really an issue. I absolutely dislike operating on somebody 35 or higher. Um, a body mass index between 30 and 35 is borderline and I really, really like the patients to be below 30 with their BMI um, after their weight loss journey is completed. And sometimes patients just haven't lost enough weight, and, and that's frustrating, uh, but it is what it is. We just have so many more complications in high BMI patients that this is really a, uh, a guideline uh, no matter what. Uh, right. I personally also don't like to operate on patients if they're still actively losing weight. What does that mean? Oh, that's a difficult question. But if somebody loses still uh, like more than 20 pounds uh, like over two months or so, um, that patient is probably still in the process of active weight loss. We all lose five pounds here and there. But if the patient is still actively losing weight, I would recommend waiting, at least with certain areas like the abdomen um, or breasts, the uh, arms uh, are usually relatively unchanged after some time. So you might as well buy some time and say, okay, if you really insist, I can address your arm and then yeah. go from there. But uh, generally speaking, I do not like to uh, operate on patients who are still actively losing weight. And then how long do you want them to have a stable weight before you feel like it's safe to operate? You know, I don't think there is a clear guideline, but I very uncommonly operate um, in somebody who uh, had uh, their gastric bypass surgery a year out. It's commonly between 18 months and two years before I, before I agree to do any kind of body control procedure. But there's not a real, there's no real hard number. Okay. When a massive weight loss patient comes in and wants brachioplasty, abdominoplasty, thigh lift, what is your typical sequence, or how do you advise them about staging these procedures? Um, I just go by um, the recommendations and by the data. We just know that surgery beyond four to six hours uh, has an increase um, of uh, complications such as bleeding, DVT, um, wound dehiscence. So I just generally uh, calculate the time that I need to combine procedures, and if I go beyond six hours, then I don't do it. If a patient has a wish list, then I just calculate, you know, what time would it take me to do these two procedures, and then I agree to that approach. But I generally don't like to do um, all with, like, a, you know, 12-hour surgery, staying, you know, several days in the hospital. I, I don't do this kind of procedure. Right. Now we'll end with some previous year's in-service questions. So, Amanda, first question. A patient who had massive weight loss comes to the office to discuss reconstruction. The surgeon determines that the patient would benefit from a lower body lift. 
Advancement of the flaps in this procedure will be best achieved by undermining which of the following zones of adherence. Either A, the distal posterior thigh, B, gluteal crease, C, the inferior lateral iliotibial tract, D, lateral gluteal depression, or E, mid-medial thigh. I know we uh, probably don't see a lot of these in residency, but what do you think? Uh, D, lateral gluteal depression. That is correct. So you can either do continuous or discontinuous release of the lateral gluteal depression to allow advancement of the flaps in a lower body lift. The second question, a 35-year-old woman comes to the office to discuss improving the contour of her thighs. History includes a gastric bypass procedure two years ago, followed by a stable 150-pound weight loss. Along with moderate horizontal excess skin, she has significant vertical excess skin and a full-length vertical thighplasty is considered. This patient is at greater, greatest risk for which of the following complications? A, hematoma, B, infection, C, labial spreading, D, prolonged edema, or E, seroma? I would say D, prolonged edema. This question uh, seems to come up quite a bit. Yes. Each of the complications listed in this question has a significant occurrence with thyroplasty in the massive weight loss populations, but prolonged edema has been shown to be a particular risk factor in patients getting a full-length vertical component in their thyroplasty, presumably due to circumferential compression of the low-pressure lymphatic system. Labial spreading is also possible, but not as likely. Okay, great. Last question, Amanda. A four-year-old woman comes to the clinic because of numbness of the right arm that extends from the mid-arm to the medial aspect of the forearm to the wrist five weeks after undergoing bilateral brachioplasty. Which of the following operative techniques is most likely to decrease the risk for this numbness while adequately correcting the deformity? Either A, dissecting adjacent to the muscle fascia throughout the length of the arm, B, dissecting deep to the muscle fascia throughout the length of the arm, C, leaving a one-centimeter cuff of fat overlying the deep fascia throughout the length of the arm, or D, performing a spinal knee resection. Hmm. I think it's C, leaving a one-centimeter cuff of fat overlying the deep fascia throughout the length of the arm. That is correct. So the concern is damage to the MABC, which we talked about earlier. Um, so leaving uh, once in a of fat helps to protect the nerve. All right, those are all of the questions for today. Dr. Min, thank you so much for joining us and for giving your input about you know, this patient population, which I think you've done a wonderful job at closing us to in residency. And it's been really helpful to go through this. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right, bye.